Well, I want to start off this morning by asking you all a question, and that question is, is how confident are you in a variety of situations which I'm about to give you? So I've devised a little confidence test here uh, this morning. I've, I've come up with five scenarios. And what I want you to do is, in your own head, you don't have to shout out your answers out loud, but on the scale from one to five, put in your head how confident do you think you would be in facing the following situations, okay? You're going to tally your score. You're going to add each one. So you're going to have a score ranging from maybe 0 to 25, although we did have someone claim that they got a 27 uh, first service. I don't quite know how they did that. <laughs> but how confident are you? One, not very confident. Five, very confident I can get this done before breakfast, okay? Situation one, rate yourself in your head here. You have to stretch your imagination because it's the middle of January and your boiler has just died. You know you have a few hours before your pipes freeze. You've got the parts, you've got a little bit of time. How confident are you, one to five, that you can face this challenge, okay? Mark that number down. Situation number two. By the way, you've also been asked to arrange your friend's 50th wedding anniversary two weeks from now. You've got a whopping $300 budget, and 40 people are expected to show up. How confident are you that you could pull that off in an honoring way? One through five, add it to your first number. Okay. Situation number three, someone's choking on a chicken nugget. You have to perform the Heimlich maneuver now. How confident are you? Okay, anyone scoring high so far? Number four, you've got to teach a Bible lesson to a group of inquisitive tweens with a lot of questions at vacation Bible school. How confident are you? Okay, you should have a number in your head here. Last one. I forgot to mention this might be stressful. You're getting charged by a brown bear when you're hiking with your friends. You have your favorite loaded bear gun at your side and some bear spray at your disposal. How confident are you? Okay, you got your number in your head? You got your total? Is there anyone here with a 25? We had a 27 first service, just saying. Okay, anyone above 20? Oh, a few. Okay, very well, very good. We only had one person first service other than the 27. Well, it's not surprising uh, that, uh, you know, we have very different numbers here because sometimes we face things in life where we have a lot of confidence. Maybe we uh, have confidence in ourselves because we know what to do really well. Sometimes we have confidence in other people. We know a guy or we know a gal. I mean, I don't know about boiler repair, but I know a guy. Now, other times uh, we lack confidence. Uh, we, we know that, hey, we don't have the skills in ourselves, and maybe we don't know a guy. Maybe we don't know a gal, or maybe we used to know a guy, but he moved to the lower 48 or retired or whatever. And we can have uh, even less confidence, I would say, to face challenges when a bunch of them come our way all at once and stack up on one another, especially if they're not these quick type of emergencies, but more lingering ones, right? A brown bear charging you is a fairly quick incident. It's going to be over one way or the other pretty soon. <laughs> That's different, though, from a lingering problem, like an unpaid bill that's accumulating interest month after month, or an illness that doesn't clear up in a week or two or a relationship that has soured and doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. Or even worse, two or maybe all of those things at once. And it's at times like these when we feel overwhelmed by these challenges, when our confidence 
to face day-to-day life can get really shaken. And this is a serious problem because when we lose confidence to face these things, we lose hope. And sometimes we can make poor decisions. We might try to numb our pain with whatever way we choose to self-medicate. We might try to run from our challenges and say, you know what, I'm going to quit my marriage, quit my job, leave my church, leave my town, and move to Cincinnati. I don't know why Cincinnati, but... These poor decisions can have lingering and destructive results, so it's very important for us to have confidence to face and weather the various challenges of life. But where do you start? It's not like you can just say in the strength of your own willpower, well, I'm just going to choose to be all confident in all areas of life instantly and have that happen. I mean, that would be a false confidence, one not based in reality, and that's not what we want. But we want a confidence that is real, unshakable, and helpful to us as we face challenges in life. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Specifically, the question we're going to look at is this, is where do we start in gaining confidence to face the challenges of life? And I'm going to give you a partial answer now, and I'll give you a fuller answer at the end of the sermon here. But our partial answer is that our confidence to face the challenges of life comes by understanding something first in our spiritual lives, something specifically about Jesus. And that truth about Jesus is going to give us such confidence in one particular area of our life that is so rock solid that I believe it will extend into other areas of life and give us support where we're feeling shaken. This truth about Jesus is going to give us this peace that is like the calm eye in the middle of a hurricane. It's going to give us a starting place where we can plant our feet in our hearts from which we can face these other issues such as health, finances, and broken relationships. And well, someone might be wondering, what is this truth about Jesus that is so revolutionary that it's going to give me confidence to face these challenges in my life? And the answer to that question, my friend, is, obviously that Jesus is the true and better Melchizedek. (laughs) Sermon done. I can just leave now, right? Okay. But Melchizedek, what is a Melchizedek? Is that kind of like small bone in your foot? Like I snapped my Melchizedek or strange Scandinavian mushroom? I don't even know what the old Melchizedek was, much less how Jesus is a true and better one. Well, no fear. If that's you, Even if you've never heard of Melchizedek before, you have come to the right place. We are here for all of your Melchizedek needs. Now, first off, uh, we'll just say this. Melchizedek's not a what, but a who. Uh, He's this rather mysterious king that shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis for just three verses, and we're going to talk more about him in a minute and about why he's so mysterious. But our focus on Jesus as the true and better Melchizedek is part of our larger sermon series that we've been going through this summer. Now, many of you have been here uh, for a lot of the summer or have been listening online, and you know uh, what this series, Jesus the True and Better, is all about. Uh, But basically, if you haven't been here in a while or if this is your first time here, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, Let me just explain to you what our series is about. The sermon series, Jesus the True and Better, talks about how Jesus is this better fulfillment in the New Testament of some key figures from the Old Testament. Adam, Moses, David. You might have noticed that the last last song that we sang was about Jesus the true and better. And what we're saying here, 
that Jesus is the true and better is that Jesus resembles these Old Testament figures in some ways by who he is or by what he does, but that Jesus' work, his life, is somehow exponentially greater and more complete. So like in, the example, in one of the examples in the song, just like Moses led, people, uh, led the Jews out from bondage in Egypt, Jesus, as the true and better Moses, paved the way to lead all humanity out of sin. Jesus did as a greater fulfillment of what had already happened. So today we're going to talk about Jesus as this new and better Melchizedek. And this question that I put on the table here to start us with is, well, where do we start in gaining confidence to face these challenges? And I'm singing, I'm claiming that the answer to that question is wrapped up in what it means that Jesus is this true and better Melchizedek. So first we're going to talk about, well, what is that? What does that even mean? What does it boil down to? And then we're going to talk about why it matters for us as we face challenges in life. But first things first, let's talk about what it means that Jesus is this true and better Melchizedek. Uh, I'll give it to you up front here. It's simply this. Jesus is a better Melchizedek because he is an eternal priest. The key to f- word to focus on here is eternal So let's open our Bibles uh, uh, and read about the original Melchizedek. I'll call him Melchizedek 1.0 to find out what he was all about. So please open up in your Bibles to the very front there in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 14, verse 18. Genesis 14, 18. And as you're flipping over there to Genesis 14, I'll just give you the context of what's going on here because it's a real brief appearance of this guy. But basically, the patriarch Abram, about 4,000 years ago, is before he was even called Abraham, comes back from a battle, meets this mysterious king, uh, and um, he comes out with some food and a blessing for Abraham. So let's read here Genesis 14, 18 about Melchizedek. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. Boom. Three verses. It's brief. We only get three verses in the entire Old Testament that give us details about his life. He brings out some eats, if I can put it that way, for Abraham. He blesses Abraham. He praises God and Abraham gives him a gift, and that's it. Now, in movie terms, this is kind of like what you'd call a cameo appearance, right? Like there's some famous actor who's kind of rushed on stage for just a few seconds, and then uh, they kind of say their line, and no sooner do they appear than they disappear. That's what's kind of going on here with Melchizedek. The story moves on. Melchizedek is not mentioned in the rest of Abraham's story, or really uh, in the rest of Genesis. And still, there's something about this guy that arouses our curiosity. He's a little bit mysterious. He's a king, but he's also a priest. Uh, That's a little unusual. It's kind of like saying someone's a doctor and a lawyer. Side note, I met someone in between services who says, oh, actually, I am a doctor and a lawyer. Well, okay, I guess there's a few. There's a few around. Well, there's a king and a priest here. And what's even interesting about the priesthood here is this is a priest of God most high, the true God. Now, that's significant because we're talking about Abram here. So this is like way back a long time ago. So Moses, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, that's all still in the future here. There was no Jewish priesthood at this time. 
So we might say, well, how did this Melchizedek guy even hear about the true God? Much less, how did he become a priest for the true God? And we are not told. As a priest, though, we know he's kind of like this middleman. He mediates between God and man, between Abraham and God. And um, we know also that he's a good guy. Uh, we know this because Abraham gives him a tenth of all the plunder that he got in battle. And also, if you read the larger context of Genesis, we see that Melchizedek is kind of set up in contrast to another king, the king of Sodom. They're kind of like side by side. And king of Sodom is clearly portrayed as a bad guy. Melchizedek is the good guy. The bottom line here is Melchizedek 1.0 is this mysterious but godly guy. He's a king. He's a priest of the one true God. And he interacts with Abraham. He provides a meal, says a blessing, and receives some gifts. And see you later. We don't know tons more about him. And if this had been the only reference in the Old Testament about Melchizedek, he'd probably be like this weird reference in a Bible trivia game, right? If you've ever done a Bible trivia game, you know there's always that one person who has all the answers. Genesis 14, what was the, you know, the king who met Abram? Ah, oh, Melchizedek, okay? Kind of like that. But he is mentioned one other place in the Old Testament for just one single verse. I'm going to have you turn over there too. In the middle of your Bibles to Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. And uh, for time's sake, we're not going to read the whole psalm, although it's a great psalm. It's an important psalm. This is written by King David. It's uh, quoted quite a bit in the New Testament because it has to do with the Messiah. And in this psalm, David basically has this prophetic revelation given to him from God uh, about the Messiah who's coming. And David writes down what God says to him. And if you read the Psalm 110, you notice that most of it is about this kingly role of the Messiah. He's going to be this ruling and reigning king. But smack dab in the middle of the psalm, we find out something else in verse 4. Psalm 110 verse 4 reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, this is referring to the Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. That's it. This is the only other direct reference to Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament. You've just read the entire four verses. You know everything in the Old Testament about Melchizedek, okay? Now, David doesn't uh, explain what this means. He doesn't explain why God referenced Melchizedek here. But this passage, which is written about a thousand years after the Genesis passage, ups the ante with our curiosity about Melchizedek. I mean, one thing here is God uh, utters an oath. He says he's not going to change his mind. And that's unusual for God to make an oath about something. It happens a few times in the Old Testament, but not many. And he says, well, the Messiah is not going to be just a king, but he's going to be a priest, kind of like Melchizedek already. And he's going to be in the order of Melchizedek. Now, to uh, a Jewish person at King David's time, they did have the Jewish priesthood, so this would be very different. You'd expect a priest to be coming from the Levitical line, the descendants of Levi. Uh, they were called Levites, Levitical priests. And that's where all the priests came from. But to say that someone was coming from the order of Melchizedek, to say he's going to be different from the priests you already know. And he's somehow going to resemble this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, from those verses in Genesis. Well, how's he going to resemble Melchizedek? The answer is summed up in a single word, 
forever. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's really the key thing. This is another way of saying that Jesus is going to be, or the Messiah is going to be, an eternal priest. And this word forever, this concept, is picked up in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament as the ministry of Jesus is discussed about his priesthood. But this is the focus of our first point here. Jesus is a true and better Melchizedek because Jesus is an eternal priest. So that's the Old Testament background, a total of four whole verses, uh, not much. But when we get to the New Testament, we do get a lot more uh, from between chapters about 10, and, or, I'm sorry, four and 10, we get about five and a half chapters that talk about the priesthood of Jesus as one like Melchizedek. And uh, I know we probably have a few people who love the book of Hebrews. I love it. It's really fascinating. Uh, so sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not going to unpack five and a half chapters of it this morning in the next uh, 15 minutes here or so. Um, there's too much meat on the bone. There's not enough time to do it justice. So what I'm going to do is hopefully with some laser-like precision, just highlight a few passages from Hebrews that point us to this key facet about Jesus, that he's the true and better Melchizedek, because of the eternality of his ministry. Then we're going to look at why having a forever priest matters, how it gives us confidence to face challenges in life. So uh, if you haven't already, flip with me to the New Testament at the very, very other end of your Bible there in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. Hebrews 6, 17. Always amazes me to hear how much paper Bibles I hear. I thought everyone was using phones these days, but that's okay. Uh, just as you turn over to Hebrews chapter 6 there, I'll just say this. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, but this is what uh, that person wrote about the forever priestly role of Jesus, starting in 6.17. It says there, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. So this is the setup passage in the book of Hebrews where the author starts to talk about this forever type of priesthood. And you notice, uh, you probably heard here, the language of stability and security is really woven through the whole thing. You probably heard it, unchanging, unchangeable, anchor, that's a good word, firm, secure, forever. And the passage starts about talking about how God makes this oath about his unchanging purposes for mankind to give his people confidence. Now, in context here, the promise is about God's promise to Abraham about having kids. But later on in the book of Hebrews, the author points out that God later makes a similar oath about the Messiah in Psalm 10, where we read, the Lord has sworn his mind and will not, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so the author then launches into this key facet of why Jesus is true and better, Melchizedek. It's because his priesthood is forever, this eternal priesthood. 
Let's uh, continue reading here, Hebrews 7, verse 1. And this is where the author is going to show us his math and show us, well, how did I conclude that? How did I get there? Uh, verse 7, 1 is something we already know. He says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, we already know this. This is what we read in Genesis. But then, still in verse 2, the author of Hebrews gives us some additional information. He says, first, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Okay, let's come up for air here. Um, Keep in mind here, he's talking about Melchizedek 1.0, the guy back in the book of Genesis here. And he draws attention to the foreverness of Melchizedek in Genesis, which is later amplified in Psalm 110 and applied to the Messiah. Well, we might ask him, how is this Melchizedek a forever kind of priest in Genesis? We only got three verses. There just wasn't much there, not much meat on the bone. But for the author of Hebrews, that seems to be the point. It's not about what was written in Genesis, but about what wasn't written in Genesis. And what wasn't written down about Melchizedek gives him this vibe or this feeling of eternality that later gets picked up in Psalm 110 and applied to the Messiah. Now, the the key verse here is where we read in 3, where it says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or ends of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Okay, what does this mean? Okay, I'll say this. I don't think it means that Melchizedek 1.0, this guy in Genesis, literally had no father or mother, or that he literally was uncreated and never died. If he was uncreated, by definition, he would be God. But I think what it means here is saying is that his father and mother weren't listed in Genesis, nor was his genealogy listed, which is so common in Genesis. And there's no record of his life that said something like what we often see in Genesis. If you've read through it, you often read things like, in the 70th year of Abuz, Melchizedek, his son, was born to him. And he lived 100 years and died and lay down with his ancestors. Okay, that's kind of Genesis talk there. So in that sense, there's no really beginning of his life or end of days. And the basic point for this, for this writer here is uh, that these gaps of information about Melchizedek give him this impression of eternality or foreverness. This mysterious guy has this position as a king and as a priest of the true God, but we don't really know where he came from or really anything much about him. And uh, I I know it's warm here this morning, but I do have to go down a brief rabbit trail for about two minutes here that's a little technical. So if you're feeling sleepy, just tune out for two minutes. I'll wake you back up. But some of you are going to want to know this because it's a question that many of you have here. Because I want to deal with one common misconception about Melchizedek that I hear thrown around once in a while. And this misconception is that Melchizedek in Genesis is an actual appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus, what we call a theophany. Now, I'll say that I think this is an attractive view uh, to many Christians because it offers some explanation for the things we see in Hebrews 7.3. It has some problems as well but even more so because it captures our imagination. Uh, I'll say up front, I think that this interpretation, it's possible but not likely, and I'll give you a few reasons why and then move on because really it's not the focus of the passage. 
Uh, and if you want to talk about this more, I'm happy to. Uh, over iced coffee, not hot coffee, uh, this week. Uh, but there are many reasons why I don't think Melchizedek 1.0 in Genesis was an actual theophany or appearance of Jesus before he took on flesh. First of all, um, uh, nothing in the text of Genesis or Psalms, which we read, would lead us to believe that Melchizedek was anything more than a real guy who was both a king and a priest. The author of Hebrews is basing his argument on what's not in the text instead of what is in the text. Uh, second, uh, Hebrews 7.3 doesn't say that Melchizedek is the Son of God, but that he resembles the Son of God. So the two are not one and the same. Third, uh, I think it would be unlikely that the author of Hebrews would refer to Jesus as a being without a father. Uh, at this time, Jesus was already known as Jesus, the Son of God. He's actually referred to in Hebrews as the Son of God as well. And all in all, what I think is going on here is that the author of Hebrews is using this Jewish interpretive method and drawing attention to how the lack of a genealogy, enlisting appearance, and so on, gives him the feeling of eternality. Okay, wake up, everyone. If you, Okay, that was the technical part. Anyway, sorry for slamming on the pulpit for no reason, but... It's kind of fun. Anyway, got to keep you on your toes, right? Um, but the point is there is he's giving this vibe of eternality. This gets picked up in Psalm 110, which we read. And it, this aspect of Melchizedek gets applied to the Messiah, that you will be a priest forever. And this forever priesthood is the point why Jesus is a new and better Melchizedek. He doesn't just give off a vibe of eternality, but he lives forever and is truly eternal. So uh, the author of Hebrews makes this uh, point abundantly clear uh, later in chapter 7, verse 24. If you've got uh, Hebrews still open in front of you, let's read 7, 24 really quickly here. The author writes, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. This is going to be important for us. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints his high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect, forever. Okay, continue on. Chapter 8, verse 1, just two verses here are important. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Now, I know it's warm in here, but if those last two verses don't give you chills. You're not getting what the author is getting at here. He's saying Jesus is this true and better Melchizedek because he has an eternal priesthood. Verse 24, it's a permanent priesthood. Verse 28, he's been made perfect forever. And then we get to that verse, chapter 8, verse 1, where it says for us Christians, we do have such a high priest, an eternal priest perfect forever high priest that represents us to God and God to us. 
Now, I have no righteousness in my own standing before God, neither do you. Uh, I have no no confidence in myself before a holy God. But do you know what? In a matter of speaking, I know a guy. And that guy has an eternal priesthood. Do you know that guy? I hope so. Because if, if you do know that guy, it means, you know what? He's not going to move to the lower 48 and leave you hanging. He's not going to cancel you. He's not going to ghost your text messages. He's not going to retire. He's not going to die. And he's not going to change. But he knows you. He cares about you. And he showed that by dying for you, by giving his life as a sacrifice to forgive your sins and my sins, and rose again from the dead. And he intercedes for us. That's just a fancy way of saying he prays for us. Do you ever think about that, how Jesus prays for us? Forever. This is what it means that Jesus is a true and better Melchizedek. If you have repented from your sins and put your trust, your confidence in Jesus, you have a forever priest. And that is an amazing thing. That's our first point. Well, now that we've made that clear, let's talk about quickly why that matters. This is why, and this is our second point. It matters because Jesus' permanent priesthood gives us confidence before God. I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Because Jesus has this forever priesthood before God the Father, Our spiritual lives, our standing before the creator of the universe is rock solid. This is the one area of our lives where we can have absolute confidence, unbreakable, unshakable confidence. This is the one calm eye of the storm that will always be secure, no matter what life throws at us, even if it's all at once. Let's look at a few verses from Hebrews that make this point. We already read Hebrews 6, so you don't have to flip there again, but if you want to, it's 6.18. I already read it once, I'll read it again. 6.18 says, We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as the anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We can be greatly encouraged. World's crazy these days, but we can have an anchor for our souls. Let's look at another passage here. Uh, Flip back with me, if you would, uh, in Hebrews to chapter 4, 4.14. 4.14. It says there in chapter 4, Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace. How? With confidence, so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, two applications here. He says, hold on to your Christian faith. doesn't get better. You're not going to find a better priest. And then approach God's throne with confidence to receive mercy. 
find grace in times of need. And this really is the front bookend in the book of Hebrews uh, before the author goes into this long five and a half, half chapters teaching about him. And then it's mirrored on the back end in chapter 10. So let's, it, it's almost the same passage here, but let's turn over to chapter 10 now in Hebrews verse 21, 10:21, And he says pretty much the same thing after five and a half chapters talking about our eternal priests. Chapter 10, verse 21, he says, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Same two applications. Hold on to your faith and draw near to God with full assurance. It's the same thing as confidence. If you know Jesus, if he's your savior, you have a true and better Melchizedek, an eternal forever priest who offered up his own life for you and for me so that we can be cleansed before a holy God. Because of that, we can have tremendous confidence before God, and that is a powerful thing. Now, um, as we get nearer to a close here, some of you might be saying, well, that's great that I can have confidence in my spiritual life. I know that my sins are forgiven, and I'm thankful for that. I know that I have a good standing before God because of Jesus, but my spiritual life just isn't where my challenges are coming right now. I've got a bill to pay. I've got some health stuff going on. I've got a relationship uh, that's not just messy. It's nuts. What good is all this confidence in my standing before God when I have no confidence in these other areas? I'll say that's a fair question. But in response, I want to give just two quick reasons why I think that our confidence in this area of our spiritual life extends to support these other areas of our life. The first reason, I think, is because our confidence in our rock-solid standing before God, because of Jesus, gives us perspective. Think about it. If you are a Christian, you have a clean slate before God forever. Guilt from the past doesn't need to haunt you, and you have the bright promise of an eternal future with God forever. And that forever standing with God gives us perspective of the things that are not forever. I mean, not many things in our life are forever kinds of things. But did you ever think about your forever with God? I do. I get excited about that. And we know uh, trials are going to come to each one of us. They might already be here. And I want to say this with a little bit of sobriety because I know that not all trials are made equally. Some trials are way more difficult than others. Sometimes it's way worse than just a bill that can't be paid. I don't want to minimize that. And I know uh, folks are going through some real stuff right now, and maybe you do too. But I will say this, that every trial is less big in light of eternity. And we have an eternal a forever high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. And he's not going anywhere. 
We know a guy. And he knows us. And whatever today may bring or next week, we know that we have a bright future with him forever. And this truth helps us to put our other challenges in their place and size them up. It doesn't necessarily make them instantly go away, but helps us to weather the storm and have perspective and hope. Now, the second reason uh, why this confidence in this area of our spiritual life can extend itself to other areas is because this right relationship with God gives us a real avenue to find help from God in prayer. To put it another way, having a right standing with God isn't just some kind of intangible, pie-in-the-sky kind of concept with no cash value. We can go to him and ask for help in prayer. Because of Jesus, it's not like we're just out of the bad books, but we're also in the good books with God. And God just so happens to be the creator of everything and king of the universe. And we can go to him in prayer boldly, confidently, because of our eternal high priest. We don't have to worry if he's going to get sick of us or bothered with us coming, but we can go and ask for him for help and anything and everything we are going through. And that's why the author of Hebrews said, back in 4.16, which we already read, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We all need his mercy. Uh, we all need his grace as we face various challenges and trials in our life. And as we approach God the Father in prayer, we can do so confidently because of our forever priest, Jesus. And that's why I think this confidence before God, we have before God, spills out into other areas of our life. Yeah, we're going to have trials, but we don't need to be shaken by them. We can have perspective, we can have hope, and we can go to God in prayer. Uh, just as we end up, let me end with this. My original question was, where do we start in gaining confidence to face the challenges of life? In response, as we consider Jesus, our true and better Melchizedek, our great high priest, our forever priest, we'll say this. Confidence starts with knowing that Jesus has got your back forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good. We praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for the, the cost that you took on human flesh, that you died in our place, that we could be made right with you forever. Lord, we don't see everything now clearly. Life is messy. Life is hard sometimes. But we need this truth in our life. So I pray you just uh, help us to have that anchor in you, behind the veil especially those who are going through it now, Lord. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Help us to have trust and hope in you as our perfect forever priests. We give you glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.